0: Turn in your Bibles to Matthew, Chapter Twenty Eight. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew, Chapter Twenty
1: Eight.
0: As I said a moment ago, this is the fifth. Of five membership classes. It's fitting for us to conclude our class the way Jesus concluded his earthly ministry with the call to his disciples to make disciples. This may be a very familiar passage to some. It's good for us to just hear it again and think about it afresh. So I'm going to read Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 18. Matthew 28, verse 18. Amen. There's one command there, one imperative in the original language. It's make disciples. We do this in at least two ways. Evangelism, where we share the gospel with someone who doesn't know Jesus and tell them how to become a disciple. And discipleship, where we help those who do know Jesus grow up in him, more faithfully following him. You can probably tell There's at least three ways in the New Testament that we see that happen. Personal evangelism, where one Christian shares the gospel with one non-Christian or a group of non-Christians. Global evangelism, where we do that in a different cultural or linguistic context. It's just evangelism in a different place. Global evangelism. And then churches helping other churches to be strengthened. I want to look at this Great Commission again, Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen to 20, in light of the whole Bible, how the first generation of disciples, the apostles, fulfilled it, worked their whole lives to fulfill it, began the work that we now continue today. This is what TRBC is all about, evangelism and discipleship, helping people know how to become disciples of Jesus and helping them follow him all the more faithfully. So that's going to happen in three ways, personal evangelism, global evangelism, and churches helping other churches. We're going to look at all of those, and I will pause and take questions, and I hope there are as many as there were last week. Just to start, thinking about that topic of personal evangelism, how many of you, just show of hands, came to know Christ through someone personally sharing the gospel with you, best as you can remember? Okay, a couple. Just want to hear briefly, keep those hands high. So I just want to hear briefly from a couple of you. I'm going to call on you. Just tell me in a couple of sentences how it happened. Start with Scott. couple of
2: sentences, Scott. Yes. <laughs> um I was, a, I was probably five or six, and I had a friend who just asked me about whether or not I was right with Jesus. And in that moment, I felt conviction of sin because I was... Didn't think that I knew that. And so he helped me pray to for Jesus to come into my life. Mm. And I did. And from there, there was a kind of assurance, I think, by the Holy Spirit, as elemental as that was. And it was because of his faithful evangelism. Mm. So
0: Praise God. Amen. Somebody had their hand up over here.
2: Yep. Sophie. Um, I ended up, I was 18, and I ended up on it. A- medical mission trip as a non-Christian, and um, I had just was a very frustrated non-Christian, mm. um, had been like trying to pray with no faith, and just thought the Lord is, either wasn't real or didn't want me, and had someone actually come alongside with me and share with me that the Lord did care and did love me, and um, just stepped out in faith with me and prayed with me. And, mm. Yeah.
0: Praise God. Amen. Somebody over here had their hand up. Ryan Powell.
1: I got in trouble uh, in high school, and I had to go home for a significant amount of time. And As I was cleaning out my locker, a, a youth pastor stopped me and said, Hey, uh, where are you going? And I explained to him the situation. And he said, Before you go home, uh, I just have something I want to share with you real quick. And he pulled out a gospel track made by the Navigators where there's two mountains, me and God, and only way to God, through the cross. Mm.
0: Amen. Praise God. And then one more person had their hand up over here. Mark. Mark Kenny.
1: Uh, yeah, I was in my mid-20s um, out of my first job after college and a co-worker of mine just very faithfully over. It took me about two years to come around, but mm. um, just over lunches, we, we'd have lunch often together, and he would answer all my crazy questions. And yeah, he was just really faithful to... Stay very patient with me.
0: Praise God. So many different testimonies. And we only heard from four people. There were a lot more hands than that. And a lot more of us in the room. So encouraging to hear how people come to know Christ. Did you notice what was in common in all of those stories we heard? Anybody want to venture a guess? Who said it? Blake. Yes. Excellent. The gospel. Yeah. Yeah. Just as Miss Megan's been teaching Phoebe upstairs the four words of the gospel, you heard them in, if you were listening carefully, you heard them all in each of those stories. God, man, Christ, response. Right? Ask Phoebe later to tell you what the four words of the gospel are. God, man, Christ, response. God, our holy righteous creator, has made us with a good plan for our lives. We've sinned, chosen to go against God's direction for our life, to be gods of our own. That separates us from God, as Ryan said, but Jesus has made a way for us to be forgiven of our sins. Jesus has made a way for us to be reconciled to God if we just turn from sin and trust in Jesus. Right? Each of us heard that, shared that. At some point in our life we believed that for the first time and became a Christian or a disciple to use the language of Matthew 28. And now each of us as disciples ought to make our lives about making more disciples. That's what we want to do at TRBC. So this class is about how we participate in that great commission. I'm going to give you three ways and go through each of them. This is a good thing to write down if you're taking notes. Number one, we make and mature disciples. How do we participate in the great commission? Number one, we make and mature disciples. Make and mature disciples. Number two, we establish and strengthen Churches. We establish and strengthen churches. And then number three, we send and support missionaries. Send and support missionaries. That's how we are going to participate in the Great Commission, each of us, if we're at TRBC. Make and mature disciples, establish and strengthen churches, send and support missionaries. And I'm going to try to show you each of those in the Bible, they're not just my ideas. The thing I wanna argue this morning in our entire time together is that you cannot understand the Great Commission you just heard if you don't understand the local church as the community of the gospel and our goal this side of heaven. We are working towards churches in the Great Commission. When we make disciples, we preach the word and we gather them into churches. That's what I want to show you. That's how the first disciples, the apostles, heard what Jesus said. And you can see that most clearly in the book of Acts, but all over the New Testament. So we're just going to look at a couple of places, because we only have an hour. Look back at Matthew 28. First point, how do we participate in the Great Commission? We make and mature disciples. Start back in verse 16 this time. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Notice it's a pre-planned meeting. Jesus told them where to go, and they met him where he said they'd meet him. 17. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Because that's what happens when somebody rises from the dead. Worship and doubt. They often go together. I don't think we should take that as unbelief, by the way. Verse 18, and Jesus came and said to them, This is where I started earlier, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now I said earlier, but I want to substantiate the only command. The only imperative is in verse 19, make disciples of all nations. It's the tense of the Greek verb that's translated there, make disciples. You might, reading the English, think that go is an imperative. It's not. It's a participle. If you want to get really technical, it's an aorist participle of attendant circumstance. But only nerds like me care about those sorts of things. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Make disciples is the command. Going and baptizing and teaching are the way in which the command is carried out. So wherever you are, make disciples. As you go, make disciples. And then some of us should go and make disciples. But all of us can do this wherever we live if we're following Christ. If we've had our sins forgiven, we can tell somebody else how to have their sins forgiven. And we should. People who live next door to us and people who live overseas. People in our workplaces and people at our dining room table. If you think I'm not trying to make disciples at my dining room table, you don't know me very well. Like every day I'm asking Phoebe if she believes in Jesus. I'm trying to make a disciple. God willing. Make disciples is the command there. I told you earlier, I just want to say again. I think we see evangelism and discipleship in this passage. I think evangelism and discipleship are the mission of the church. That's why TRBC and any church exists. It's to make disciples, to see people become disciples, to tell them how to become disciples, that's evangelism. To see people grow up as disciples, that's discipleship. We're trying to see people follow Jesus. That's why he says in verse 20 that part of the making disciples is teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. If you don't have a good de- definition for evangelism and discipleship, I want to give you one, especially if you're a note-taker like me. I've never heard a better definition of evangelism than the one by Max Stiles in that little red book called Evangelism. He says that it's teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade. Evangelism is teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade. You're telling someone how they can become a Christian, how they, be- they can become a disciple of Christ, And your goal is to see that happen. Persuasion. You really want them to believe it's true. Now, I know that that doesn't happen apart from God working. That doesn't change the goal. The goal is still to see this person become a Christian. If I can answer objections as I'm sharing the gospel with someone, I will. Because I want them to believe it's true. It's the only way to make sense of this life. Teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade. If you don't have a good definition for discipleship, let me give you one. It's from Mark Dever in that little blue book called Discipling. Both of those books are phenomenal, by the way, if you haven't read them. He says that discipling is when you initiate a relationship to teach, correct, model, and love. Discipling is when you initiate a relationship to teach, correct, model, and love. That's what we're doing when we meet together as Christians. In this church, God willing, when we are a church, there will be a culture of evangelism and discipleship. Each of us, as individual Christians at TRBC, will be about helping people to see how they can become disciples and helping disciples to see how they can follow Jesus more faithfully. What I want to argue is it takes a church to make a disciple. So, so far, you've heard me expound Matthew 28, And maybe all you heard me saying was what you as an individual Christian do. It's not less than that, but it is more than that. So if all you heard was individualistic, here's what I'm going to do in my following of Jesus, I want to put that in the context of a church with a very strong claim. It takes a church to make a disciple. How could I possibly say that? Anybody want to venture a guess? Amen. I think the Bible does. Not in those terms, but yes. (coughs) Stephen? Precisely. Excellent. Look back at the passage, verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, doing what? Baptizing them. Who baptizes? I heard somebody say it, churches baptize. Churches baptize. Jesus gave the ordinance of baptism to churches. Jesus gave a unique authority to churches to proclaim the gospel and to recognize gospel professors. People who say, I believe that. I want to try to show you that from Matthew. Flip back to Matthew chapter 16. I think Blake is right. I think the Bible says this. I'm going to try to show you how. We can't just read Matthew 28 in isolation. We've got to read it in its context, which means read it with the chapters that come before it. Look at Matthew 16 in particular and see if you can hear some of the same language that we just heard in the Great Commission. Matthew 16, I'll start in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? It's a big question. Who is Jesus? That's the question he's going to answer. And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the gospel confession. Peter is saying, who is the Son of Man? He's the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's loaded with meaning that we don't have time for, but just think about that one word, Christ, the long-promised Messiah from the Old Testament, the one in whom all the promises of God, Paul says later, will find their yes and amen. This is the one we've been waiting for, the one who's going to take away the curse that God put on the world because of sin and disobedience. Peter is confessing the Christ, the Savior, the Messiah. Verse 17, And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you, listen to this, the keys of the kingdom. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He tells you what the keys do right after he tells you that he gave them to Peter and the church. They bind and they loose. They bind and they loose. Keep that language in your head. The keys of the kingdom are the unique authority of the church. There's a lot of debate if you read the commentaries about who the rock is. Is it Peter? Is it Christ? Is it the confession of Christ? I don't intend to settle that, though I do have my opinions. The point I want you to see is what happens in this passage is the gospel is proclaimed rightly. You are the Christ, the son of the living God, the one who can save us. And there's someone who's professing that gospel, who's identified as a gospel professor. It's the gospel and the people of the gospel. What does that sound like? Sounds like a church to me. If you're not convinced yet, keep going. Matthew 18. Matthew 18. Remember that binding and loosing language. Matthew 18, starting in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to Peter No, the apostles? Not exactly. The elders? Not exactly. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. But listen to this, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, that's plural, truly I say to y'all, Whatever y'all bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever y'all loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. It's the same language, the binding and loosing. Matthew knows what he's doing. When in two chapters he pulls, back, he, he pulls on the thread that he just sewed, <laughs> that binding and loosing language. Now listen to this, verse 19. Again I say to you, If two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. It's not a verse about you and your friends at Starbucks. It's a verse about the church. That's the context. The church is the one who has the unique authority to bind and loose. Binding and loosing is drawing on Deuteronomy, Just language of assessing evidence and rendering a verdict, that's all it is. What's interesting, if you read 16 and 18 together, the two chapters, where the same language comes up, is the same thing is going on. The gospel is being proclaimed, and people are believing it and being identified. That's what churches do. Churches have a unique authority as those who are gathered in the name of Christ to proclaim the gospel and to identify gospel professors. Jesus says that when we're gathered in his name, he's there among us. Did you see that? Verse 20 of chapter 18. Flip back to the Great Commission. Matthew 28. Wherever two or three are gathered in Jesus' name, he's there among them. There's a unique presence of Christ with the people of Christ. Look at verse 20 again, the end of it, the last sentence there in Matthew 28. And behold, I am with you, always, to the end of the age. There's a unique presence of Christ with the people of Christ. Wherever two or three are gathered, there I am with you. And behold, I am with you, always, to the end of the age. You see, Matthew wants us to read these chapters together. You see it? I saw some nodding. See some more nodding. The church, with the word of Christ, has a unique authority to identify followers of Christ, Christians, disciples. How do they do it? Well, proclaim the word, observe who believes it, baptize them, and teach them everything Jesus commanded. And we didn't look at Matthew 22. We could have. It'd be edifying to look at this afternoon. There's another ordinance he gives. The Lord's Supper. That the people who are baptized, believers in the word that they've heard, also take of the Lord's flesh and blood together in symbolic fashion. So these ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, which belong to the church, identify people who believe the gospel. That's why you can't make a disciple if you don't have a church. So, I'm sure you've heard me say we should go out and evangelize and disciple individually. What I also want you to hear me say is we should do that in the context of a church, this church, Trinity River Baptist Church, post-April, Lord willing. Let me give you three quick ways the church can come alongside you in your evangelizing and discipling. Three quick ways the church can come alongside you as you make and mature disciples. First, consider the church as a witness, a witness to the gospel in light of everything we've been seeing from Matthew's gospel. You can trust every single week, if you bring a non-Christian friend here, they will hear the gospel. It'll be in our sermons when we preach. Ben and I will take a moment specifically to address non-Christians. We're going to have to think about how we do that, because in Northern Virginia, you can just say, if you're here and you're not a Christian... My understanding from being here in Fort Worth for a month is that everybody here thinks they're a Christian. And sadly, some of them are not. But you can trust that if you bring a friend here who doesn't know Jesus, even a friend who thinks they do, and you're concerned they don't, they'll hear the gospel. Not just in the sermons, in the songs. Now, Have you thought about the songs we're singing? Jesus, keep me near the cross. In the cross, in the cross, be my glory Forever till my ransomed soul shall find rest across the river. That's gospel. That's good news. There's rest across the river of death because of Jesus and his cross work. Him as the sacrifice for our sins. Him as the substitute for our justification. We're going to sing the gospel every week. We're going to preach the gospel every week. And then yes, I think we'll even see the gospel In the ordinances I was just talking about, people being baptized, which is a picture of them dying to sin, and then rising to newness of life in Christ. And of course, the Lord's Supper, where we see a picture of the body and blood of the Lord, the body that was given for us, the blood that was shed for us. The church is a witness, a unique witness. In our services, we see and hear the gospel. We're also not just a community of individual evangelists and disciplers. I hope we are that, but I hope we're more than that. That in our love for one another, the world would know that we're his disciples. That he came and lived and died and rose. That's what Jesus said. Jesus said, by your love for one another, the world will know that you're my disciples. So the church has a unique witness in sharing and showing the gospel. Number two, the church is an equipper. I made that word up. Is that a word, Scott? Sure. Sure. It is if you say it is in this day and age. The church is an equipper. That is, we hope to be a service to you in the sense that we strengthen you in your evangelizing and your discipling. As you're going about in your individual life, in the spheres of influence God has put you in, you're doing this work of participating in the Great Commission and we hope we can come alongside you and help you to do it all the more. And when I say we, I actually mean we. I don't just mean me and Ben. I mean we. How much refreshment and encouragement and just frankly better ways of doing it do we see and get when we're together? I mean, I'm so helped. I'm a feeble and frail evangelist, I tell you what. I was not kidding when I said I think I'm a lousy evangelist. I'm so helped by seeing brothers who are just frankly have done it longer than me or are doing it better than me, clearer in sharing the gospel, right? I helped to be able to ask questions. Hey, this person said this. What would you say? Like, I'm doing that all the time because I want to be better at sharing the gospel with people. I want to be better at making disciples. So the church has a unique equipping function. And then number, two, number three, so the church is witness, the church is equipper, and number three, the church has outreach. I know these sentences don't make grammatical sense. Maybe their quirkiness will make them all the more memorable. The church's outreach. That is, you're going to be rubbing shoulders and bumping elbows with people you haven't met before, and some of them will be non-Christians. Not just in this service, but in other settings, right? So there's lots of ways Ben and I have dreamed and schemed and planned about things we'd love for TRVC to be and do. Some things like a vacation Bible school where we can not only share the gospel with kids as they come, but with parents. I mean, I don't know if you've asked, but there are people who have come to know the Lord Jesus because they were the parent of a kid who was in VBS. That is a unique strategic opportunity right there. I was uh, studying in, in prep for this message and was reading that Max Stiles evangelism book that I told you about earlier, the little red book. And he talks about in the book, he's at a a conference at a church, and he's sharing about how to have a culture of evangelism, a lot of the things we've been talking about this morning. And someone raises their hand and asks, have you noticed how many Vietnamese have moved into our neighborhood? What's our plan? What's the church going to do to reach out to them? That's how the question was put to him. What do you think he said? Don't give him the right answer yet, Preston. No, he's exactly right. You're the plan. The program is the people. It's not as though we need to host an event where we have Vietnamese food and invite everyone to come so that we can evangelize and disciple. Some of us are going to give our lives to the Great Commission by moving into that neighborhood, either buying or renting a house, being a good neighbor, having friendships with non-Christians, Of a certain type or flavor or persuasion, of a different culture or language or people group. And we're going to share the gospel with them. And they're going to come to TRBC. And they're going to hear the gospel and see the gospel and know how to become disciples. And maybe, just maybe, by God's grace, some will. That's the plan, that's the program, it's the people. All right, so number one, make and mature disciples. Number two, establish and strengthen churches. Flip to the book of Acts, go to chapter 11. Chapter 11. I said a moment ago, there's a couple of places we could look at, several in Acts in particular. We're just going to look at three quickly as good examples of what we see. We've been talking about how we make and mature disciples and how you can't make a disciple without a church. So now I think it's fitting for us to talk about how one way that we participate in the Great Commission is by establishing and strengthening churches. That's the language of the book of Acts. How much in the book of Acts do they say that they went back to strengthen the disciples or to strengthen the churches? Let's look at a couple of those, starting in Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, verse 19 is where I'll start reading. And after Herod searched for him, actually, it helps if I read the right chapter. That was Acts 12. How about Acts 11, verse 19? Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who, uh, on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching. were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Do you think that passage describes how the first century church participated in the Great Commission? Because I do. Did you see all of the things that we've been talking about in that passage as an example of how the apostles understood Jesus to have commanded them to live? I do. I tried to emphasize them as I was reading. They're speaking the word. They're preaching the Lord Jesus. Some of them believe and turn to the Lord. I'm just reading phrases in the passage here. And a great many people were added to the Lord. The report comes to the church, who's the one who sent these people to do this work. Let's see if we can find it a couple more times. Look at Acts chapter 13. I'm just going to read the first five verses. Acts chapter 13. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. It's interesting, the Holy Spirit sends out people from this church. And the way that everyone else knows that the Holy Spirit sent them out is also in the passage. It wasn't just a mystical, invisible experience. It wasn't just something that they sensed internally that no one else could see. Did you see that? Verse 3, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And then verse 4, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit. The sending out of the Holy Spirit is the sending out of the, of the church. The church lays hands on them. And what do they do? Well, they go to these places and they proclaim the word of God, just like in Acts chapter 11. All right, one more. Acts 14 just skipping around in the book of Acts to see what the first disciples did as they participated in the Great Commission as an example of how we should also live. They established and strengthened churches. Acts 14, verse 21 is where I'll start. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, that's Great Commission language right there, they had made many disciples They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Listen to this, verse 23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Biblically speaking, when the gospel spreads, churches spread. Biblically speaking, when the gospel spreads, churches spread. The gospel goes out, the word of the Lord is proclaimed, Jesus is preached, people believe in him and turn to the Lord, and then they gather themselves in churches to worship God. Churches... I want to argue, are the means, the method, and the end of missions. That's not original to me. Churches, I want to argue, are the means, the method, and the end of missions. Churches are who sends, the means. Churches are how we send, the method, and churches are what we're trying to do, the end. That's what I mean. Churches are the means, the method, and the end of missions. It's churches who identify, train, and send missionaries at least if we're talking about the Bible. It's churches who identify, train, and send missionaries. When missionaries go, whether they're called pastors or not, they do the work of pastors of churches. They preach the word. They administer the ordinances, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. They make disciples. And then they identify those people as disciples by baptizing them. And then those disciples gather together in churches and take the Lord's Supper just like we're going to do here in a different context. And then, of course, that's the method. And, of course, they're the end as well because the goal is to establish a church. That's our goal, this side of heaven. More churches. More gospel communities full of worshipers of God because he deserves it. All right, I've done one and two. I should pause and ask questions. Ask if there are any questions. So we're talking about how we participate in the Great Commission. We've covered, one, make and mature disciples, and two, establish and strengthen churches. I'm going to go to send and support missionaries in 3 John if you want to turn there. But I'll pause and see if there's any questions at this point. If you hit the book of Revelation, you've gone too far. 3 John is next. Any questions? Happy to take any questions.
2: <laughs> there we go. That's on. Um, is there any relation to this in terms of what the church is supposed to do, in terms of the church's mission to maybe cultures or the ways in which the church is to affect certain places, so obviously making disciples is kind of a large encompassing category, but I don't know if you could maybe talk about maybe the distinction between some of those things. Yep. Where's I think you understand the question, so Yep. Maybe.
0: Great question. Scott's asking, what's the mission of the church, and is it to transform culture? And my answer is no, it's not to transform culture. Mm-hmm. Um, I try to take my cues from the Bible. I'm sure everyone in this conversation does want to do that. Um, Part of the reason we've started with Jesus' final words and part of the reason I pointed out that it was a planned meeting is because I think this is programmatic for our mission as a church. I think this sets the terms for what we're supposed to be and do. Make disciples. That's the tip of the spear, we could say. It's the center of the bullseye. Anything else that we do, that we could do, that's good in the world should be centered around that. Right? So the primary emphasis is on making disciples. That doesn't mean we're gonna do things that aren't evangelism and discipleship. There will be things that we do that are not evangelism and discipleship in the sense that I'm using them today. But those things always follow in the train of evangelism and discipleship because that's what we think we're supposed to be doing. We think we're supposed to be making disciples of Jesus. That's what he told us to do. There are churches who will say uh, that they want to be about transforming culture redeeming the culture, engaging the culture, Uh, this is common language today. I trust that many of those people are well-meaning Christian brothers and sisters. I don't think they're ill-intended. I hope that those things don't distract from what I think Jesus thinks is the main thing, which is making disciples, baptizing them, and teaching them. Calling Christians into churches to worship God. Uh, one one pastor has said i think this is very well put that christians care about all suffering especially eternal suffering there's only one way to get eternal suffering to end or be escaped it's by believing in the lord jesus it's trusting in his blood right so i just i don't want us to lose the emphasis the primary that's not to the exclusion of all the other good things we could do it's not i promise but if we lose the, the priority of preaching and teaching and making disciples, I think we've lost the biblical emphasis. Christians do care about all suffering. We will do a lot of things to try and end suffering or alleviate suffering in this life as a church. We care all the more about eternal suffering. Any other questions or any follow-ups on that? Mark. Um,
1: maybe you were just addressing this at the end, but how do you envision TRBC as associating with other parachurch ministries? Like, I appreciate that the church is central. Just, what is your view on kind of parachurch ministries and how that'll work?
0: Great. Uh, in case you didn't hear it, what's what's our view on parachurch ministries and how we'll associate with them? I do intend to get to some of that in the send and support missionaries. One of the main things parachurches are really helpful at is coming alongside the church and seeing everything that we're talking about happen. So, for example, seminaries are very helpful in teaching pastors Greek and Hebrew and church history, which maybe I could do, but it feels outside of my reach, to be honest with you. (laughs) Uh, And so that's a very helpful way we can partner with a parachurch to do what they can do uh, in a much easier lift than what we could do. Uh, Another example would be missionaries uh, or sending agencies, right? So, uh, the International Mission Board or the North American Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention are very helpful parachurch agencies that come alongside the church to help us with all the logistical challenges of sending a missionary. We think churches identify, train, and send missionaries, and parachurches can be very helpful with all of the legal details, all of the financial details, all of the uh, even cultural details sometimes. Um, so, that's ways in which we could partner with parachurches. Parachurches are a wonderful blessing of God. Insofar as they don't try to replace the church.
2: Good question, Mark. Zach, you'd use the example of like a TRBC couple moving intentionally into a Vietnamese neighborhood, uh, you know, sharing the gospel through relationships and and that kind of thing. How and then you know inviting them to TRBC. How how might TRBC, you know, with a, if you have a new believer out of a different culture work to have that believer learn how to worship in their own cultural forms, not step out of their culture, not leave their culture, worship Jesus, go to church in their own culture, that kind of thing, without making them TRBC, Western
1: kind of
0: thing. Yep. It's a great question. Uh, The question is about how culture overlays with worship. It's a huge, important, complicated question. I'll try to sketch a very brief like movement towards an answer, but it's going to be insufficient. Um, two things. Number one, I think the regulative principle is very helpful. We need to do what God commands. And we need to not do anything God has commanded us not to do and not try to invent ways of worshiping God. He's been plain and clear. He hasn't hidden himself from us. He's told us how he wants us to worship him. We should do those things. In that principle, there's a very old historic distinction between elements and forms The things that God has told us to do are elements. Every church has got to do them or they're not faithful. The way that those elements are expressed are going to be different in different cultures. Those are forms, right? So let me give you an example. You're all sitting on individual chairs, not pews. That's that's a form, right? The element is preaching the word. That has to happen. So it makes sense for there to be chairs. In our case, it makes sense for there to be chairs that move because this is not our space, (laughs) We could have pews, and we wouldn't be any less faithful because of it, right? That's just an example uh, to show you elements and forms. The way that the Bible transcends culture is that it prescribes elements and not forms. The second thing I'd say, and I think we should be sensitive to this conversation, um, is that the principle is that your culture doesn't help you or hinder you in Christ, so it shouldn't help you or hinder you in the church, that's the principle. Very simple principle to understand and state. Very hard to apply. That's the complicated nature of this conversation. right? So should we be aware of cultural forms which serve as barriers to the gospel and not helps to it? Yes, of course we should. I'd be open to hearing from any of you if you think there are some of those even here or in churches that we plant in the future. Um, but the principle stays the same. Your culture does not help you or hinder you in Christ. So it should not help you or hinder you in the church, right? Every culture should have the gospel preached to it and should believe the gospel. And no culture helps or hinders in access to the gospel. It shouldn't. So it shouldn't in the church either, right? Longer conversation, I'm sure. But
1: there's my brief kind of principled answer. Jonathan. Um. I don't want this to come off the wrong way because I totally believe in the church and and the way I would say it is you can't be a disciple if you're not in the church. But so just to push back slightly, so the church baptizes and and makes disciples. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yes. But how would you talk about Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, for instance, or the fact that the baptism we see in the Bible is John, people coming to John the Baptist and being right. baptized. Good. And obviously that's before Jesus established the church. I understand that. But with Philip, it wasn't. And then, again, all all disciples of Jesus should join the church, should be members of the church. But, you know, I, this is perhaps a, a silly picky question, but if someone were isolated and were getting one-on-one discipleship and studying the Bible and studying the Word and so forth, you wouldn't say, oh, you're not a disciple because you're not a member of a church, or, you know, how would, how would you talk about that? Great.
0: I'm so thankful for how you're listening, brother. I appreciate it. Um, yeah, I set myself up for that one on purpose. So when I said you can't make a disciple without the church, of course, the quick reply is, what about Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch? My answer is, when we talk about missions, gospel precedes church. Whenever Philip goes to the, we're just going to use that as an example for this conversation, right? You could apply it to other situations like today. Whenever Philip goes with the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch, and the Ethiopian eunuch believes, the gospel came before the church. What do you do with the Ethiopian eunuch once he believes? Well, what Philip did is baptize him, which is something only the church can do. So now there should be a church in that context of that believer and the missionary. That's how I would, that's how I would understand that. Um, so gospel precedes church is the short answer. Of course, it's necessary that we send one person, especially in the case of a, a people group who's never been reached at all, never heard the gospel, you're sending one or two Christians to that culture, to try and plant a church, right? So everything I just said still holds. The only sort of edge case is there's no church there, but you're going with the gospel to plant a church. The first convert you make, so to speak, is going to become that church with you, the missionary, right? How? Baptize them, right? And then start taking the Lord's Supper together. It's a great question. I think that's the way to understand the Ethiopian eunuch story. Um, there's also, of course, as you alluded to, there are, there's a transition happening. We're moving away from Old Testament and into New Testament. So there's this kind of overlap of the ages where things are very complicated to parse, which gets me to your second question about John the Baptist's baptism. I wouldn't understand that to be Christian baptism. I think it's a historical precedent. I think there's some similarities. Obviously, people are getting dunked in water but he says he's proclaiming a baptism of repentance for sins. I don't understand that to be Christian baptism. I think Christian baptism begins in Acts 2, when 3,000 hear and repent and believe, and Peter says, be baptized. Those are the first Christian baptisms. I'm being a little facetious, but I think you get my point. Uh, and I forgot your third question. Sorry. No, just about people, but I think you answered. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Remember a couple of weeks ago when I was up here and I said ordinarily is a really important theological term. I would just slap an ordinarily on, right? Uh, what we don't want to do is let the kind of 1% or 2% edge case dictate the other 98% that's really clear and not an edge case. That's where the word ordinarily is helpful, right? It covers those sort of circumstantial anomalies, providential hindrances, where we can say, oh, this is not functioning the way it's normally supposed to like a Christian in isolation. Um, That'd be my answer there. We do have to move on for the sake of time. So, great questions. Uh, How do we participate in the Great Commission? Number one, we make and mature disciples. Number two, we establish and strengthen churches. And number three, this is where we'll close, we send and support missionaries. Look at 3 John. I'm going to start reading in verse 5. 3 John verse 5. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. You can see our two key words, send and support missionaries. The phrase in verse Seven, that they've gone out for the sake of the name, signifies missionary. This is a person who's left where they were with the message of Jesus to see people come to know him. And what does John tell the church there that they should do? They should send them, verse six, and they should support them, verse eight. I wanna talk about the specific way in which they should send them. It's in verse six, in a manner worthy of God. That phrase means, whatever you would do if you were sending God, you should do for these missionaries. That's pretty striking. If we thought we were sending God, or maybe God's ambassador, it would change the way we send them. couple of ways we could do this. We could send people such that they need nothing. Such that they have all they need. That they could testify by God's grace, he's given me all that I need. He's supplied all that I need through the church. One of the things that means for TRBC is that we're going to support fewer missionaries for the glory of God. I'm not the first person to say that. We're going to support fewer missionaries for the glory of God. Why? Because then we can support them with all the more money, with all the more relationship, with all the more trust and accountability and time and attention. We can focus our efforts as a church on a few so that we might send them in a manner worthy of God. I don't know if you've talked to missionaries, we have some in our midst. Be a good conversation to have over lunch today or later this week. Ask them about raising support, and you'll learn a lot. I mean, missionaries spend a lot of time and energy and focus, a lot of the time, on raising support. What if they didn't have to do that? They could spend all the more time and energy and focus on making disciples. What if they didn't have to come home for three months? furlough every year off the field. Like, what if we could support them in such a way that they didn't have to do that to come back for support raising trips? I realize there are good reasons to come back. I understand. I think you get my point. We want to send and support missionaries in a manner worthy of God. And notice what the text says in verse 8, that when we support people like these, we become fellow workers for the truth. There's a sense in which our supporting them of course financially, but also relationally with time and energy and focus and training, we become fellow workers in the truth. The good gospel work that they're doing, we're partners with in some sense, in some important sense. Though we ourselves haven't gone, we've sent, and that makes us fellow workers for the truth. That's why we want to send and support missionaries. You may know, but John and Jess McGlott are already in our midst. They've worked in East Asia for a time and are back for this season in God's providence. They're with us. We would love, Ben and I would love, to send them back to East Asia with all of our support in this kind of a way. It's going to be so sad when that happens. when We have to say goodbye for the gospel. But it's such a good thing that we can do for Christ because he's worthy. Wouldn't it be a joy if God raised up missionaries in our midst? One practical way that we'll do this at TRBC is through the Southern Baptist Convention. This is an SBC church, or it will be one. Um, I mentioned this in response to Mark's question earlier, but things like the SBC are very helpful, especially in the context of missions. Missionaries and seminaries (laughs) are really particularly helped by parachurch organizations like the SBC. There's something about Southern Baptists And I became a Southern Baptist by choice as an adult. There's something about Southern Baptists that they've just figured out this mystery of pooling money in a way that no one else has ever figured out before. I look at it and I just marvel. It's amazing. Because you have 47,000 churches, churches that are very different than us, some of them, who are still pooling all this money in the cooperative program so that we can give 6% of our revenue... Just a couple thousand dollars. And then somebody like the McClods can be supported a full-time salary for three years. That's how the IMB works. That's amazing. I mean, that's a, that's a gift of God. It's the blessing of God. Uh, our partnership with the SBC, us being in friendly cooperation with them, lets each of our seminary students, of which there are many by God's grace, go to Southwestern for 50% off credit. I've done it. It's the difference of $60,000 or $30,000 for a four-year degree. That's a massive difference. I take that as the blessing of God. Praise God that we can partner with the SBC for those sorts of things. So we want to send and support missionaries in a manner worthy of God that we might become fellow workers in the truth. That's how I think we're going to participate in the Great Commission. Make and mature disciples, establish and strengthen churches, send and support missionaries. Let me pause there before I pray and see if there's any other questions you have at this point. Stephen has one in the back. How will the uh, church go about deciding who, the, who we all support uh, as a church collectively? So great. Uh, is
2: that a decision that will be made by the elders? Will it be voted on?
0: Yeah, great, great question. So every year, um, right now, I'll propose a budget uh, probably in June, and then you'll have a uh, lot of time, two months before the next members meeting when we would vote on it, um, to ask questions, to make comments on those sorts of things. That budget would include who we send. So that's one way that the whole congregation's involved in how this church spends its money. Uh, how that happens more upstream is probably going to be conversations with elders, right? So if you're sitting here and you're listening to this talk and you're just salivating, at the glory of God in missions, you should have a conversation with me or Ben or both of us about that. You should tell us that you want to be sent out and supported by this church as a missionary. That's how those sorts of conversations start. Um, and then, yeah, we would, we would get to know folks. It's, it's wonderful. Again, in God's providence, the McGlots are here. You should get to know them. Uh, whenever they're here, if we're able to send them out in the future, when they visit again, you should spend time with them, have them over at your house, host them in your home. We would do that with anybody. They just happen to be sitting right here so I can pick on them. But that's the way that the whole church can get involved is through relationships, time, energy, trust, prayer, right? Um, it's not just going to be the money, though that is one important factor as well. Does that help answer your question? It does. And can I ask a question? Sure, yeah. Um,
2: d- do we have any plans to sort of support or partner with
0: a, uh, a group on any college campuses nearby for missions work? That's a great question. There aren't plans right now. That's something I'd be very eager to see us do at some point soon. Uh, part of that is just praying and discerning how the Lord would use us. Uh, we discern that through relationships we have. So if you have ideas like that or you know of people who you want Ben and I to talk to, yeah, please do that. That would be helpful. Um, yeah, campus ministry has a really uh, sweet spot in my heart. You know? So I'd love for us to be able to do that. Um, we just don't have any plans right now. Any other questions? A couple more.
2: So this question goes back to an earlier part of the presentation, but um, I was curious to hear about um, in the process of sharing the gospel with the goal of persuasion, um, where do you see apologetics fitting in there?
0: Great. Um, this is a big question that I love very much, so maybe we can talk more after this, but my brief answer is um, apologetics serves evangelism. If it doesn't do that, it's not a kind of apologetics I want to engage in. So maybe some of us have a bad taste in our mouth when we hear that phrase. Apologetics is just the word we've used to talk about the discipline of defending the faith, right? Now maybe in your experience, apologetics means talking about how many angels can dance on the head of a pen. That's not the kind of apologetics I'm interested in. The kind of apologetics I'm interested in helps to answer objections to Christianity so as to remove them from the conversation and get back to the gospel, right? When I'm talking to somebody who's not a Christian, I have one aim. I want you to know how you can become a Christian. There's only one way you can have your sins forgiven. It's by trusting in the blood of Jesus, right? My apologetics only comes in after that in service of it. So I'm just trying to show how it's reasonable to believe the things that we believe. It's not ridiculous or silly or
2: irrational. That's it. Good question. Uh, For CP, do we have like a target that we're hoping to give? Is it, I don't know how that works typically in terms of... Towards missions? Towards missions in terms of giving to the CP. Yeah, yeah.
0: great question. I should have said that. Thank you, Scott. Our hope is to be able to give 10% of our budget to missions because we believe the things... I've just said. Um, it's going to be one of our main focuses in terms of our time, attention, and dollars. We're a church plant. Our budget is small, and 10% is a lot. That's not an excuse. It's to say that's the goal we're working towards. In our year one budget, Ben and I decided 6% was a good starting place. Our aim is to work towards 10. And if we can get it over 10 to 15, we would praise God. We would be glad to do that. Good question. Matthew?
2: Um, and when we're reading through Acts, we see them lay hands and the church
0: send out uh, whose spirit called them. And so I guess uh, at TRBC, do we have a plan or the desire to look and see people who we think are gifted in evangelism or maybe gifted in teaching and would love to see go to the nations or go
2: to seminary and support them to, to maybe quit their jobs and do that?
0: Yes, very much so. Great question. I will say one thing Matthew's question, I think, assumes that the rest of us should notice if we didn't. Um, I don't assume that you're going to be a really effective evangelist if I move you across the world. Unless you're already a really effective evangelist here. So if you feel that burning in your bosom, that salivating I was talking about earlier, focus on how you can participate in the Great Commission right here where you are. That's why I gave the example from Max Stiles about the Vietnamese community, right? You can notice those things right now in your neighborhood. Great question. Anything else? Two more and then we'll have to close. Blake.
2: Any plans on supporting Annie Armstrong or Lottie Moon specifically?
0: Any plans on, on, I didn't hear it.
2: Doing Annie Armstrong offering or Lottie Moon offering on top of the budgetary giving as well?
0: Not opposed to it in principle. We've not discussed it and we need to. Thanks for the question.
1: Do you encourage uh, members of TRBC to support uh, missionaries on an individual basis or primarily through the local church?
0: I would love to see that happen. I think that sort of giving towards missions happens over and above your giving towards your local church. So I think as long as we understand the relationship of those two things, I'm so happy for that to happen. Uh, not, Not many of us maybe, not all of us certainly, have the kind of income that we can do that sort of thing. For those of us who do, we should pray and seek God and see how we might be an answer to prayers to send missionaries, right? Over and above giving is one amazing way that we can do that. I think that's wonderful to do. I'm seeing no other questions, so I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing our final song, which is There is a Happy Land on page 22 of your songbook. Let me pray. Our Father, we thank you for this morning that we can focus on the last words of Jesus, on what we're to be about as a people, as your people. Would you strengthen us for your service? Would you burden us by the lost? who are dying apart from salvation in Christ by faith. Would you move us, Lord, to share the gospel that has saved us with those who don't know it? We know, Lord, that if you don't raise the house, we labor in vain. And so we pray that we would be about planting and watering and that you would give growth.